We've been working through this series over these past few weeks. We've got this week, and then we've got a, if you like, a big picture roundup next week. We've been looking at the nature of spiritual life, vital signs for life. The idea of the phrase, we've mentioned it on a number of occasions, the idea of the title, Nine Vital Signs, is the idea that we need to understand whether there is life. We've just prayed, recognizing that there is a difference between being able to read words in a book and the power of God breaking into our lives so that those words which are real without us understanding them become real in our understanding. There's a difference that takes place. It's the coming to life, the birth of life, by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, I guess in one sense we need to understand what does the Bible have to say about this life, about securing this life, about nurturing and caring for this life and recognizing this life. Paul's writing to a group of Christians in Galatia, Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, and he says uh, that the fruit of the Spirit, or if you like, if you think about that idea of fruit of the Spirit, what he's saying is that if the Spirit exists in a person or in a company of people, church in this case, but individually within a person, if the Spirit exists, fruit will come to pass. That happens. In other words, when we read Galatians chapter 5 and it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, etc., 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 all of these identifiers of life, it's saying that is a sign that the Spirit exists. Now what we've said right the way through is that um, as we've been thinking about these different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, each one of them will resonate more with us. Either it will resonate because we are by nature more inclined to have an affinity with that particular quality, or it will resonate because we have an affinity not... Oh, no, we can't have an affinity to not be like it. We can have, uh, if you like, a recognition that we are not like that. So, for example, some of us might be, by, by nature, joyful people. You know, our temperament is joyful. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. One is patience. One of us, some of us might say, well, I might be a joyful kind of person, but I'm not a particularly patient kind of person. So is it just personality traits? What we've seen repeatedly is it is not personality traits that are coming out. They are unique differences that take place. They are, if you like, our lives beginning to replicate Jesus. Living differently, fruit emerging in our life that makes us look more like Jesus because we are being changed. That's really important. That means that there are some areas where we will be really challenged and we will grow by faith, by the gift of faith. We might grow 
significantly in some areas. You know, there are some people who um, changed remarkably. They were not once that kind of person, but they become people who are just filled with a spiritual, Christ-like joy. They've lived a life which has been concerned, which has been worried, filled with um, questions, filled with anxiety, filled with fear, and then they have an experience of the life of God breaking into them, and things just change. <laughs> they suddenly, they have a purpose, they have hope, they have joy welling up in their lives. That is a remarkable spiritual change that goes on for some. For others, and for most of us, those spiritual changes are little by little by little, and perhaps not as great at times as we would want them to be. In fact, the more we journey on our Christian life, the more we tend to recognize that they are not growing as much, much as the Word of God demands that they grow, and that we would want them to grow, and we find that we feel that we're not progressing. That's in one sense, that's a good place to be in one sense because we are recognizing more and more what we ought to be. In fact, most people um, don't realize the progress that they are making the more they come to terms with what they are not. <laughs> if the Apostle Paul in Romans can say, I look at my life and I find I am just a broken, sinful wreck of a man, what would you look on? if you were able to walk the pathway at the same time as the Apostle Paul? Would you look on and see a broken, sinful wreck? In spiritual terms, in, if you like, a life that is an example lived out, you would see a man who was living the Christian life with absolute faith, commitment, unwavering. And yet for him, he feels as though he's not progressing. That's an encouragement to all of us, I think, that we should listen less to how we feel and trust more in what God says we are in him. That's really important because the last one that we're going to look at this afternoon is um, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control. I reckon that pretty much for all of us, that is going to ring a bell which is not a comfortable bell to hear the toll of. For all of us, we recognize that there are issues of self-control. All of us will have a challenge when it comes to this. Um, we will find that okay, we might be pretty good in certain areas, but there are other areas where we are just, we cannot control ourselves. We cannot get a grip on ourselves. So I think it's important, firstly, for us to understand what, how do we understand this idea of self-control? And then, even more so, what does this text have to say to us about the idea of self-control? Because it seems, on face value, a very strange text for us to look at when it comes to self-control. Walter Mischel was a Stanford professor, and in the 1960s he conducted a series of experiments on children and their self-control. They were kind of termed the marshmallow experiments. He, he took some young children into a room and placed in front of them a tray 
of marshmallows, sweets, cookies, a whole range of great treats, the kind of thing that makes little children salivate. Sat them down and basically said to them, right, okay, here's the deal. You can have one marshmallow now, or whichever, which do you like? Marshmallow. That's why they were called the marshmallow experiments. I, love, I like marshmallows. So you can have one marshmallow now. Or I can go out of the room and I can leave you for a while. And when I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Or if you can't wait, you can ring a bell. I'll come back in straight away and you can have one marshmallow. How's that? And then they had a camera just watching these children's behavior. A few marshmallows on the table right in front of them. How are they going to respond? And some of them would sit patiently. Some of them would sort of stroke the marshmallow. (laughs) It's a lovely marshmallow. I love you very much. Uh, Some of them would twiddle with their hair and try to look away. A few of the I think generally a few of the younger lads would just devour all the marshmallows there and then without ringing the bell. Um, They probably won, actually, because there was more marshmallows than two. Um, Some of them were able to wait patiently. They had self-control. And they would wait until the guy would come back into the room and they could have two marshmallows. Interestingly, what they then did was they they started to map out what happened. They returned to those same children in 1981. What kind of pattern of life were they living? Uh, And then much later on, they returned again. I think it was in the 1990s. They actually found a a link between those who had exhibited great self-control with future success. Fascinating. An example, if you like, of what we might think about in human terms about self-control. I think it's really, really important for us to ask the question, is self-control, when the Bible says, exhibits self-control, is it that stoical self-control that we think of in human terms? Or is it something else? How can, you, how can we expect to respond to God saying that part of the work of his spirit dwelling within us and part of our spiritual journey is to exhibit greater self-control? And anyway, what does the self mean? It's big questions, you know. Because if we could leave here thinking, I've got to just tighten up my bootstraps. I've got to work out from here how I stop doing certain things, how I stop cramming all the marshmallows, figuratively speaking, into my mouth. What does it mean? Let's have a look at this text that we've looked at. Jesus arrives in the Gerasenes. It's kind of the northern part of the Holy Land right up north, Galilee area. Uh, Really, very often what we don't do is is understand what was going on 
in that area at the time. What was it like? Well, there was Galilee right up at the top. There was Samaria. Samaria was the, if you like, they were the people who had rejected the message of God, pretty much. And then there was the Judea, which was the, around Jerusalem and the temple. And that was the, if you like, the heartland of the people who would call themselves the Jews. But Galilee was part of it as well. Interestingly, they were kind of, they were considered uh, second rate, really. One of the commentators that I read described them that, figuratively speaking, the Galileans, they dropped their H's. That's the way they'd have been thought about. They were the hick people up north. Have you seen that Phones for You advert where they go to the sort of southern state's hick town? Uh, That's the way the... Galileans would have been thought about. It's really important. Really important. Because Jesus comes from Galilee. So when you think about the idea of a Messiah, a Savior, coming from Galilee, in fact, later on they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's up there. That's in the hick place. That's the kind of place where good things don't happen. They can't even speak properly. And they're not even in the, if you like, the religious uh, core. They're nowhere near Jerusalem, nowhere near the temple. They're out there, up there. And Jesus came from there, from that area. So Jesus is up in this town, crossing over on the sea, pulls up on a boat across the lake, And as he gets out of the boat in verse 2, we find that he is is confronted by a man with, described in Mark chapter 5 here, an impure spirit came from among the tombs to meet him. Verse 2 to 5, we find out about this man. Now, bearing in mind what we've just said, those living around the Jerusalem area Those living, if you like, in the religious territory would read this and they would think, well, yeah, it's bound to happen up there, isn't it? It's bound to happen, that wacky, crazy stuff. All that weird stuff goes on up there. We find that this strange thing happens because this man who has an impure spirit, in other words, there is something going on in his life where... He is out of control. That's the point here, isn't it? He is out of control. We see the way he is. He's lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. What a picture. What a picture of a man who has lost any kind of control. Any kind of self-control has just disappeared here, hasn't it? Now, do you remember last week, those of you who were able to be here, we were looking at an account where Jesus engages with a man who was physically disabled. 
One of the things that we saw there is our tendency, compared to the desire that God would have us uh, think about. He points to this man and says, right, here's this man. He's been disabled for 37 years, 38 years, was it? Basically, he's been disabled for a long time. Our tendency, in human terms, is to look on that and separate ourselves from that man and say, you're over there. In fact, that's exactly the way it's portrayed in the story. The man is out there around the pool with all of the other people who are physically disabled. And the tendency is for us to separate ourselves and say, we're not like that. I think what the Bible encourages us to do far more, however, is to relate to that. Jesus said to some Pharisees who thought that they were the super elite... I've come for those who know that they are sick. (laughs) In other words, rather than you thinking thinking that you are superior, I want you to realize that you need to engage, to to realize that you are far more of a oneness with those who are broken than you actually think you are. Now, if we can apply that to the brokenness of uh, of physical disability, how about this? How about we are called, when we confront this, to realize, compared to God, compared to Jesus, we are far closer to this man than we are to Jesus. The brokenness... The lack of self-control, the control of something else over this man is far closer to our experience. And yet, don't we have a tendency to place ourselves distant from all of that? Here we have this man who has lost control. He is under the authority, under the power of something outside of himself. As we read this description, we find a man who is, I guess, fluctuating between control. For all that he is out of control, looking on, you can guarantee there are many times when he thinks he's in control. He thinks he, I'm sure, he thinks he's in control. When he's chained up, do you think he thinks, I'm glad you've chained me up because I'm out of control? Of course not. He's thinking, what are you doing chaining me up? Free me. I want to be in control. In other words, his expression of his own control is actually out of control to the observer. But he is fluctuating, I'm sure, between this sense of control and this sense of despair. We see that as well. What's going on at night time? He's amongst the tombs. He's cutting himself. You know, in reality, folks, when we look at this man's condition, we realize that the spectrum of human experience means that this man's experience is not that far away from many folks who we know and we love. Is it? This man's experience is not that far away from folks who we might know and who we might love. I know, just based on percentages, 
that will, there will be those who are struggling with the, idea, with the issue of self-harm. I know that. Just based on percentages. Control and despair. Issues of personal challenge and issues of pain. Where's our hope in that kind of experience? Where's our hope? Jesus comes to this man. As we look at this man, I think we can also relate and say, well, what's gone on? How is it that he is where he is? What's happened to him? We don't know. But I think we can see from our own observation of our human experience that we are both victims and perpetrators, aren't we? We are those who are the victims of horrendous sin. We are those who find that the experience of life and the the evil of others and the wrong of others impinges on our personal experience and damages us and hurts us and breaks us and causes us to respond in a way which is unhelpful. But at that point, at that point of brokenness, how do we respond? We, We do both things, don't we? We become those who are the victim and those who carry it on. We carry on doing these things. Now, the interesting thing here is what we see in the next section. This is a man, clearly, he is not by nature the kind of person who could resist eating the marshmallow, is he? He's not by nature that. But nature has gone out of control, and it's described here that he is possessed. He is under the power of an impure spirit. Verse 6 to 10, now that we've introduced the man, we see Jesus entering into the situation. Jesus comes up to him, and when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran towards him. In other words, they've now come close. Jesus is approaching him, we guess. But certainly, the man approaches Jesus. We get the impression that Jesus must have approached him to some extent because of a comment that comes along later. But we see that he falls on his feet, on his knees before Jesus. And he shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. In other words, there is an engagement somewhere along the line with with Jesus saying, Come out. I think that this particular little section is really challenging. There is a sense in which... In human terms, we will explain away this particular chapter. We will say, well, here's somebody who, is, who, who has a, a psychological problem. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. They are brought to a point of absolute human experience crisis. And they have been in that experience of crisis for some time, a long time. 
They are doing things which are extreme. There is a psychological breakdown which is dramatic for this man. And there is one level on which humanity would want to stop there and say that's as far as it goes. That's a psychological condition. Nothing more. Jesus enters into the situation and engages and sees beyond that. That there is a spiritual dimension to our existence. Now, I think this is really important as we work through this. There are some people who would limit this and would say, it's only a psychological condition. It stops there. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is that we see demons and possession everywhere. It's just everywhere. You know, we write off psychological conditions. It's demon possession. If you want to see where, that, where we get to with that, just watch many of the Hollywood blockbuster issues around possession, the right, the exorcist, all of those. We scrap any issues of psychological conditions and we just place it all in the issue of demon possession. I think that actually Jesus, because of who he is, can see it in terms of human condition and yet a greater dimension of who we are. Who we are. There is a spiritual battle going on. And when we limit that spiritual battle, we see it only as a psychological condition. <laughs> that, doesn't, that means that there is a greater dimension to our condition in every experience. There is a spiritual me. I am not limited because what this demands that we do is we limit all of our experience to the physical and to the chemical. <laughs> That's what that demands we do. I am nothing more than a set of chemical properties bound together with electrical impulses. That's all I am. And therefore anything that happens with me is contained only within the sphere of the physical. And Jesus says, and the Bible says to you and me, you and me, we are more than that. We are spiritual beings. There is a dimension to us which is outside of purely the physical. And I think one of the great challenges that we have in our society is whenever we only try to fix it on the physical level, we never get very far. There is an us there is a spiritual dimension to you and me. You are a spiritual being with a body. <laughs> Not a body with a spiritual being. You are you. Made in the image of God. I am me. Made uniquely in the image of God. I am a spiritual being with a soul that will never die. And God in his grace and mercy has united me with a physical body. But my experience and my relationship, my understanding of who I am, is not contained within the electrical chemical experience. And this man is out of control in both that dimension and the spiritual 
dimension as well. But when Jesus steps in, there is an authority that comes to pass which is greater than both. Look at what happens. The man runs up to him. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Jesus said, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. That verse is fascinating. Look at what it says. And he begged Jesus not to send them. You see that? He, the man, begged Jesus not to send them. There is a sense in which there is not, in the man's experience, a disconnection between him and what's going on in his experience. He sees himself as them. And his voice is them. There is a sense in which this spiritual, overwhelming, psychological crisis has taken over this man to such a point that it is this has become his definition. This is me. This is my definition. This is who I am. I don't know this man's background. But what I do know is this. There are many of us who end up in challenging and difficult situations and take on a definition of who we are. And in taking on a definition of who we are, we end up on a journey of greater and greater crisis where the definition of who I am becomes deeper and deeper entrenched and we become more and more who we've decided we are in our particular crisis. And I can't let go of my crisis anymore. I hold on to my crisis. It's who I am. And it grows and it spirals and it becomes the person that I am. And Jesus says to those who have faith in him, you are not what you once were. You are a new creation. So you are changed. Now that is key. Because it raises the question, am I the kind of person that just has self-control? Or can I change? You know, if we do the marshmallow test, I would say if you do the marshmallow test at 8, you'll probably get the same result at 28, 38, 48, 58. Some of us are just good at not eating, some of you are just good at not eating marshmallows. Some of us are just bad at being able to resist marshmallows. That's just the way it is. But can I change in terms of biblical self-control. Here's a man who's out of control, but look what happens. The unclean 
joins the unclean. That's, what does that mean? A herd of, large herd of pigs, 2,000 are on the hillside. The demons beg Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Pigs are unclean at this particular point in the history of God's people. There's a point in which we're free and we're liberated to enjoy pork. Don't worry. I think we had pork today for lunch. It was great. It's fine. But there was a point in in the history of God's people where God is drawing little pictures to help us to understand and pigs at this point are described as unclean. The unclean joins the unclean. In other words, what was not really understood by the man as unclean, this is my definition of who I am, leaves him and enters in to the clearly unclean. It's no longer his uncleanness. The uncleanness is transferred to what is recognized by everybody around as unclean, and the pigs disappear off the cliff and into the sea. It's left him. That's the picture that is being portrayed here. The uncleanness leaves the man and enters into something which is known to be unclean and disappears. It's gone. It's finished. And what do we find? The result of which is that the man is in control. He sat at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. He's in control. Self-control. It isn't Jesus who's chained him. Do you see that? Previously, people have been chaining him up to try to control him. He is choosing to be at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, because he has been made right in spiritual terms to be right before Jesus. And the result of being right in spiritual terms is that he is more controlled than he once was. Do you see the change? He is now in control. What's happened? He has been confronted by Jesus and has become a new person because the uncleanness has left him in simple terms. Now, this is extreme. This is an extreme change. This isn't the kind of change that happens for pretty much most people. So I I think it's really important for us to not run away and think, therefore, every one of us with some sort of psychological issue, challenge or condition, it means that it's just going to disappear if we become a Christian. That is what is called, for those of you who want to make a note of this, an over-realized eschatology. It means that what's going to happen in the future, we expect will happen Now, what this story tells us is that every one of us, with any kind of challenge or issue or condition, in the future will be made right. That's what Jesus will do. Just like a physically broken person is made right by Jesus, they actually, their body decays again. 
Maybe this man's mind decayed again as time went on. You know, maybe he did reach old age and maybe he did end up with dementia and he was now no longer in a right mind as he is at this point in time. That's irrelevant. It's a little picture to say that the future is one of fullness and rightness, completeness in Jesus. So where does this take us? Because this man ends up in his right mind, complete, full, and whole. Right. He's restored. We said right at the very beginning, the purpose of these stories is not for us to isolate ourselves from the characters, but rather to realize that we are far more like the characters. Romans chapter 6 16 to 20. Go and read it tonight. Make a note of it. Read it tonight. That little section of Paul's writing, Romans chapter 6, tells us this. We are slaves to something. By nature, we are slaves to sin. We are under the power, the authority, and the control of sin. We are slaves to it. This man was a slave to what had taken over him. <laughs> and we all look back and we say, I I'm not like that. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not taken over with an unclean spirit. We are, by nature. Every one of us are taken over with an unclean spirit, by nature. It's a spirit which rejects God. It's a spirit which rejects Jesus. It's a spirit which is antagonistic to all that God would have us to do. We are by nature possessed by sin. The only question is how broad the spectrum is. That's the point of this story. This man is at the extreme end of rejection. All of us by nature are on the spectrum of rejection. We reject God. We are under control of sin, sorry, sin is under control, is controlling us. We are under the control of sin. Just like this man. I think he got up in the morning and said, I think I'll do a bit of screaming and shouting today. I think I'll do a bit of cutting. Do a bit of chain breaking. Do you think we get up and say, I think I'll, I think I'll do a bit of lying. I'll do a bit of rebellion today. I'll do a bit of covetousness, I think. I'll do a bit of impatience. Of course we don't. We are under control of something which takes us down a line. Now, by relationship with Jesus, we become slaves, not to sin anymore, but to righteousness. We become a slave to righteousness. It means that we start to live liberated for, to some extent on a progressive journey, freed from what we once were to be something that we now are. The only issue is whether we want to do that. I think that's a big challenge. Do we want to do that? There's a verse in the Bible, in fact it's one of those challenging verses 
Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. It's the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, which in one sense leads on to the commissioning of every other person who is called to witness and bear testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. It says this, Therefore, and go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Personal testimony, folks. That verse terrifies me. It terrifies me because the demand that it places, that I am not just to teach you about Jesus. I am to teach you to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And I confess that I think I fail in that. I'm so thankful for the cross that redeems me from all my failures. But I am called to teach you to obey. Not just to know about Jesus. And I think that our challenge is that we can say, I'm, I'm quite happy to say, oh, in this condition, I'm quite happy to say I'm a child of God. But when I look at this aspect of my life, I tell you what, I'm not letting go of that. I'm not letting go of that. I will do this. I will do that. I will do the other. I do want my life to be this and not that. And it might be that part of my job at times is to say and to confront and to challenge you and to say, are you living your life? Am I living my life in a way which is not accepting the, the nice bits, but is living the discipleship demands of Jesus, which says, obey in all things. Self-control. What does it mean? Well, it can't, clearly can't mean simply that I'm in control, can it? Because I can be in control and do all the wrong things. Self-control actually means I think this. It means that we actively, in a committed way, come under the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Day by day. I actively pursue Jesus as my Lord, in all the things I don't want to do, as much as the privileges of what I do want to do. And when I look at two options, my self-control emerging by the power of the Holy Spirit working in me, absolutely says I no longer pursue my goals, I pursue your demands. It's a great book written by John Piper, what Jesus demands of the world. It's based on that verse where Jesus says that we're to go and teach those to obey. He's looked at all of the four Gospels, ignored all of the rest of the Bible, 
And he said, what does Jesus, in his own words, demand of us? (laughs) What does he say we are to do? Self-control? I think in one sense we could sum it up in this. It is Jesus becoming our Lord so that we actively pursue a life which supports the living out of all of the other fruits of the Spirit. That's self-control. I actively pursue the living out of everything else that has gone before. It's not disconnected. But I now pursue a life that wants to live it. You might be thinking, what is this about? What is this about? What's all this coming under a new law thing? Bob Dylan wrote a song when he was a period of his life where he was claiming to be a believer in Jesus. Sadly, it looks as though that's gone by the wayside. As far as I know, as far as we can see, he's rejected that. Unless anybody can tell me otherwise at the end, please do. I'd be thrilled to learn otherwise. But he wrote a song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. Everybody's going to have to serve somebody. I think it was on the album Slow Train. (laughs) Don't you think... Don't you even begin to think that it's a case of being free over here. But if I become that Christian, I'm going to have to go and serve Jesus. You're going to serve something. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve some set of objectives and powers and authorities that are making demands of you in your life. You are serving something. And Jesus says, my servants are not slaves, they are children. They are freed and liberated to become servants of privilege. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, there were some servants who it was the best job in the world. Do you know some servants, some slaves, even inherited from the master's own house in the Roman Empire? Slaves inherited from the master's house. They were a privileged position. Jesus says, you know what? You can be a slave like that. You can be a slave that inherits from my house. What a privilege. That's what we are called to do. And that's the privilege of being a slave to Jesus.